Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And do not be wise in your own opinion. And Father, we just humbly bow our hearts before you lord i even think of that very last phrase that we wouldn't be wise in our own opinion father how often my opinion is wrong and lord your truth is what's right and so i pray this morning that you would use the truth of your word to eradicate wrong opinions and ideas and perspectives and attitudes and even behaviors in my life, in our lives, that the truth of your word would go in and catheterize our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us what we need to hear. We ask that your Holy Spirit would prepare us supernaturally, that we could be alert and attentive to what your voice would want to say to us personally and that you would speak to us and that your spirit would be our teacher and our minister. Bless your word, we ask now. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what does it mean to live well? I noticed in advertisements and certain things recently, sometimes maybe a product or a program will use those two terms, live well. Well, what does that really mean in regards to our lives? I think these verses that we're going to look at this morning together in the book of Romans certainly give to us a pretty good pattern to start with. These, as I said, are sort of short commands uh, that God gives to us, short commands that sort of are from God regarding characteristics and attitudes and behaviors that really should mark the Christian life. I think we come to a section now in the book of Romans where the Holy Spirit is sort of indirectly saying to us, this is what a Christian should look like. You know, I think we have a lot of different perspectives. Certainly the world has some stereotypes and ideas of what does a Christian look like? If somebody's a Christian, well, what does that look like? Does that mean they wear Christian and religious t-shirts and, you know, Jesus hats or they, uh, you know, have certain mat? Well, what does a Christian really look like? Well, the Bible says this is what a Christian should look like. These are commands that God gives to us because if we walk this way and we walk out God's will, these things, if we follow them, would cause us, I think we'd all have to agree, to reflect Jesus, to represent Jesus whom we say that we do follow as Christians. Now, granted, let me say this up front as we look at these things. God is not expecting perfection. Do you know why? Because he knows he'll be thoroughly disappointed. <laughs> He's not expecting perfection in these things from any one of us because he knows that we can never deliver on that. None of us can deliver perfection in any aspect of God's will or God's commands. That's the whole reason Jesus died on the cross because we all sin and we all fall short 
of the standard that God requires of every one of us. That's why Jesus died in our place and took the punishment for our sins that we deserve. Nonetheless, the standards of living right, the standards of God's will and what pleases God are never lowered for us in the word of God. God still holds the standard before us and still asks us to walk in these ways amongst one another in this world. And it may involve denying our will, but it will help us to live well in this world and to represent Christ if we live in these manners. So let's begin to look at them together. Paul begins verse 9 with these little short commands of God. First of all, by saying, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So one thing we see is that Christians should be seeking to love in sincerity. We should be seeking to love in genuineness. He says, let love, verse 9, be without hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, I shouldn't need to probably define it, but basically is just being ungenuine. It's being insincere. When someone is guilty of hypocrisy, they're pretending to be something that they're not. That's what hypocrisy is. And we should endeavor as Christians, seeing God's word, what it has to say about hypocrisy, taking note in the Gospels how much Jesus despised and was very strong against those who were guilty of hypocrisy, especially spiritual hypocrisy. We should endeavor to avoid and to resist and to quickly repent from any measure of hypocrisy whenever we see it surfacing in our lives. Here's what's quite staggering we're told here, love without hypocrisy. Apparently, from God's perspective, as it pertains to loving people, we can even do such in a hypocritical way. And that displeases the Lord. That dishonors the Lord. Apparently, even in this aspect of seeking to be a loving person or loving people, we can be guilty of hypocrisy. And I think there's kind of how it happens for us. As Christians, when we come to know the Lord... We experience God's love. We read his word and we realize we are supposed to be loving people. We're supposed to be loving people. So is there, okay, I, I'm a Christian now. One thing that's clear about Christians, they're to love people. So therefore, what happens is an endeavor to try and be loving. We sometimes sort of play the part of trying to be a loving Christian. So we're always trying to be loving and sometimes we can be guilty of trying to be loving. And truth be told, it's really just an act. It's just a show that we can tend to put on because we want to hold up the Christian idea or standard. And, and here the Bible is saying to us, listen, don't just act or pretend that you love people when you really don't. God's saying, if you really don't have love, now it doesn't mean I think you should act like you hate them and, 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 and show all the cards in the deck, if you understand what I'm saying. But, but God's saying to us, listen, don't become guilty of just becoming a pretender as it pertains to showing love to people. Don't allow that to be happen. I suppose hypocrisy, let's say this, in relation to love, really is probably one of the most distorted forms of hypocrisy that there could be. I mean, think about it. That's a picture of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was guilty of pretending like he loved Jesus when he really didn't. That was loving in hypocrisy. So, again, we want to be careful that we're not pretending to love someone with some ulterior motive or reason. That's what Judas did. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 1, that we should have love from a pure heart. Now, if we were to be honest with ourselves, the, the perplexing thing is this. Okay, then, then 
I don't, I don't want to be guilty of that, but I have to be honest. Sometimes there's an absence of love in my heart. Sometimes I sense that there's just a lack of genuine love in my heart. So if I don't want to be guilty of faking, I don't want to be guilty of pretending like I love people when, when I'm really not sensing that from a genuineness in my heart, what do I do? Where does that love come from? I, I can tell you from firsthand experience for myself, I've never been able to generate love for people. Hatred, I'm pretty good at that. Anger, animosity, frustration, those things come quite naturally to me. But generate, generating love and compassion and concern, I find I can't muster that up. It doesn't just naturally ooze out of my being, but the Bible tells us that God can deposit his love into our hearts. God can give us his love. In fact, I don't think a person truly knows how to genuinely love until they have a relationship with God. I really don't. I think people who struggle with human relationships, one of the fundamental struggles is because they don't have a genuine relationship with God, so they can't have the highest ideal of a genuine relationship with people. The Bible is wonderful because it tells us that we can experience God's love, but more than that, we can then be conduits and vessels whereby God then gives us his love to express that love to other people. God can cause his love to be birthed in our hearts supernaturally. The Bible says that God is love and God's love is sincere. God's love is pure. And the Bible says the fruit of the spirit is love. So as we're abiding in God, we're abiding in Jesus. The fruit of that relationship is, is love bursts forth and blossoms forth in our life. It's a byproduct of God's spirit working within us. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. He says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. What a wonderful promise. God, I had to be honest. I just, I just, there's a real lack of love in my heart right now. Lord, I just sense that, that there's just an absence of the love that I want to have and I know I should have for people, for unsaved people, for my spouse, for my children, for my parents, for my friends, for my fellow students. Lord, I just, and God says, that's okay. Because if you abide in me and let me produce in you, the wonderful thing is God loves to answer prayers like that when we can be honest about it. And it says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Pray that, Lord, direct my heart into your love. Give me your love. God's able to do that. Now notice as the verse goes on, verse 9, when we love the way God loves, it shows us that it will cause us to have an honest and a discerning love. Again, often we think of love and we picture sentimental and, and, and there's an aspect of love that can be sentimental, but God's love is always seen as an honest, pure, discerning love that stems from his holiness, that stems from truth. And when we love the way God loves, we see here verse nine that we should and we will love therefore what God loves and we will also therefore hate and detest what God hates and detests. Notice our verse here tells us, first of all, verse 9, that we should abhor what is evil. Good question to ask ourselves this morning is this. What is our current attitude toward what's evil in this life? Would you agree? Look at the landscape, not just in our country, but all over the world. It's quite obvious that evil is very prevalent that it is widespread in our world today. We see evil things happening all around us. 
with regularity and many of those evil things directly affect us personally or affect our families. They're affecting our society and our culture. And it's a very prevalent thing. And the presence and activity of evil becoming so constant in any society can begin to have an effect whereby it starts to desensitize the people who are a part of it and they become accustomed to it. And it's a very natural thing to be so inundated with the activity in the presence of evil where gradually we become desensitized to the presence of evil among us. It just becomes the new norm. It just becomes, why not? I mean, we're we're 75% of the way there changing marriage. We're already at 36 out of 50 states. I mean, why bother? It's the new norm. It's just the new norm. And see, we can begin to gradually begin to just become so accustomed where we're no longer even shocked by what's evil anymore. It doesn't even bother us. It doesn't phase us. At one time it had an effect, but, but we just become so desensitized because we're inundated, 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 where all of a sudden we begin to just sort of almost embrace it And God is warning against this. Look, should we be lovingly tolerant? Yes. But there's a big difference between tolerance and love and endorsement. Well, we want tolerance. We want tolerance. Listen, I'm already tolerant, but I refuse to accept it. I'm already tolerant, but I refuse to endorse it. Don't ask me to endorse it. That's crossing a line there. And here God says in regards to all forms of evil that exist that his heart is that we would have an attitude where we actually detest. There's an abhorrence towards what's evil. Why? Because what's evil hurts people. Why does God detest and hate what's evil? Is it because he's a prude? No, it's because he loves greatly. And God knows evil hurts people. Evil destroys families. Evil ruins marriages. Evil evil hurts children. It, It damages society. It ruins lives. So as we love the way God loves, we will love what God loves and detest what God detests. And God detests and abhors evil because of the painful problems that evil brings. And so God asks us to be on guard against this, not to allow ourselves to embrace it or to become apathetic or indifferent. So we're to refuse to embrace evil. But secondly, he also says there, that we're to cling to what is good. Now, please take notice of this. Let us not be marked as Christians by those uh, who are just opposed to this and opposed to that. And we, and, uh, listen, God says, listen, resist what's wrong, but you also should be actively cling, clinging and pursuing to what's right. I don't want to be known just because of what I'm against. Oh, you're a Christian. You're the one that's just against everything. Yeah, I am against certain things, but I'm for a lot of things too. And so he says here, abhor what's evil, but cling at the same time to what's good. The word cling means to hold on tightly, to adhere, to attach to something in such a way whereby you refuse to let go. That should be our continual response and relationship to what's good. We should be holding tightly to what's good. We should refuse to let go of what's wholesome and healthy, clinging to what's pure and right, despite pressures that want to make us let go of what's good despite problems and personal struggles in our life and disappointments and hurts and discouragements and even the bad experiences that you have in your life, you keep clinging to what's good. No matter what your experience has been, 
Keep clinging to what's good, holding on tightly to those good things that God's instituted for our benefit. And God knows apparently there'll be continuous temptation and occasion to detach from such and to just let go. It's too hard. I, you know, I'm too frustrated. I'm too, you know, just over. And, and so we just can begin to let go because of the presence of evil. It makes us let go also of what's good. And here God commands and consciously says to us, no, you continuously fight to hang on to what's good. And this morning, in case you need some examples to remind you of what's good, let me help you. God is good. So cling to God. No matter what people say or how you're treated or what, you keep clinging to God. No matter how bad your life is, you keep clinging to God because God's good. God's word is good. It's truths and it's standards and it's principles. You cling to the word of God. No matter what anyone else says about the word of God or whoever else may abandon the word of God, you keep clinging to the word of God and its standards and its truths and its promises. Marriage is good. So cling to your marriage. Maybe it's bad. Maybe it's hard. Maybe it's rocky. But you know what? Fight for it. Hold on to it. Stay attached to it. Raising your children properly is good. So in a healthy way, cling to them. Stay connected to them in a way where you can be a healthy influence. Prayer is good. Being at church is good. Being a person who represents what's righteous in an unrighteous world. Being moral and pure is good. So guess what? If you're a young person and you're still a virgin or you're a single adult and you're still a virgin, cling to your purity. That's good. That's a blessed gift that you can give to someone one day and avoid a whole lot of baggage in your marriage because you clung to your purity, which is a good thing, and you gave it only to one person. Cling to those things. Hold on to them. It seems we only have so much energy to expend in this life. So I think God's saying you kind of got to pick your battles. You got to pick your battles. And by that I mean this. I'm not talking about what we should fight against, but what we should fight for. We should fight for holding on to what's good. Fighting for what's good, taking a fresh hold. Maybe today take personal inventory. Think of those things that are good. And, and, and sort of retreat and say, you know what, Lord, I need to renew my grip on those things that are good and take hold of them and not let go of them. He goes on, verse 10, saying, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. So he says here, as a Christian, we should be caring and tender in our treatment of others and willing to consider their needs above our own desires and our own interests. Verse 10 there, he says, first of all, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. It's, it's a family term there. Astorge shows up there in the Greek. It speaks of that familial love, family love. And, and he says, we should speak and behave and treat and interact with one another like a family. The Bible teaches this continuously, like a loving, healthy family is how we should treat and relate to one another. And even in the best of families and the healthiest of families, there are still times, even though we're family, that we irritate one another and we upset one another and we misunderstand one another. But yet God says that innate familial love, and it's true, is it not? You may fight like a cat and dog with your brother and sister, but at the end of the day, you would strangle someone else for them because that innate familial love that's in there just by nature makes you 
devoted to someone. It makes you dedicated to a family member. And God says, this is how as Christians we should function and treat one another. There should be a care and a concern and affection that we have towards each other because we're family. Does it mean we're not going to irritate one another once in a while or misunderstand or hurt one another or have offenses or problems? Yes, but we're family. And families stay together and families work things out and talk things through and love and forgive and embrace. And the Bible says that we are spiritual children. We have the same father. And so we're to conduct ourselves in that way like a family to honor that bond that we possess. And like any healthy family, it's necessary, isn't it, that everybody grow in the process of learning how to do what he says at the second half of the verse, which is an honor to give preference to one another. We have to learn in families how to set aside at times what we want so that somebody else can have what maybe they want or their preference or their desire. The natural inclination in my heart, the world's pattern is to do what? To live life in a self-serving way. It's my needs. It's what I want. I want to pursue my wish, my demand. I want to hear my song on the radio. I want to eat what I want for dinner. I want to, you know, it's always about what we want. That's natural. That's natural. My interest is always the most important interest and my idea is always the best idea. It's my idea. Of course it is. And so this isn't born in us and it's just reinforced in the world. But God says, but the child of God is different. The child of God should live different. They should be respectful and considerate of what may be best for others. And I'll tell you something, you live like that, you'll be like a blinking light in the world that we live in. You're very different because most people don't function that way. But to willingly deny yourself or set aside what you want or you need to give honor and preference to someone else and say, hey, what would be in your best interest? What would be in, in, in your best interest? What would be your preference? And I'm willing to say no to myself so that I can say yes to you in this area or that circumstance. Philippians 2 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, that was the mindset of Jesus, wasn't it? He looked out for the interests of others. Jesus denied himself and sacrificed to benefit and to bless others. And I tell you this, gang, this is a defining mark of a maturing Christian. It's a defining mark of a maturing Christian because when children are very young, they're infants, right? And, and they're little kids. What are, what are the little children marked by? Yes, they're naive and they're sweet, but they are the most selfish, self-serving little creatures. I've raised a few. They're 14, 16, and 18, so I don't say that vainly. The world revolves around them. And some people never grow out of that. So the defining mark of a maturing Christian is that you learn how to say no to yourself so you can defer to others at times and do what's in the best interest of someone else. Now, trying to live that out is hard, isn't it? It's difficult. But God says, this is the way that we should be functioning. He goes on, verse 11, saying, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So another thing we see, verse 11, is a Christian should seek to be a person who's dedicated, who's passionate, and who's spiritually productive. First, he talks about what we should not be. 
What we should not be, he says here in the Bible, is we should not be lagging in diligence. The word diligence there implies hardworking, conscientious, somebody who's thorough and persistent, somebody who's dedicated in their pursuits and activities. They put forth a steady, earnest, energetic effort. And God's saying, this is how I want you to be. This is what I want your nature to be. This is how I want your habit and mannerism in life and responsibilities to be. Again, why? Because it's so different than the pattern of the world. Again, our natural, sinful, selfish tendency and the pattern of the world, just go to a place of, of work where your vocation may be. What's the pattern of the world? To do as little as possible to get by. To do as absolute bare minimum as you can on the job site or during the day that you don't get caught just as little as possible to get by and to pick up your paycheck. And that's a natural sort of mindset that gravitates into our life. And God says, as a Christian, I want you to be different. I want you to manifest a different temperament, a different approach, a different characteristic. God's word tells us that we should be productive people, that we should be diligent people. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with everything in you. Whatever it may be, whether it's caring for your children and cleaning your home or whether it's working in your place of employment or you know, taking your studies as a student, whatever, just do whatever you do and do it well. And do it to the best of your ability. Don't lag in diligence, which would be succumbing to laziness and sloppiness. Beginning to give little attention to things and minimal effort. He says, instead, we should be dedicated in our commitments, diligent to those things we put our hand to, and known as the person who does a good job, known as the person who takes on a task and is efficient and gives their best to it. And, and that should mark us in our job, despite what others are doing. Be diligent, the Bible tells us. In our ministry role, we should do such. And let me say this, the most important area we should never be lagging in diligence is in our relationship with the Lord. In our relationship with the Lord, Hebrews 11 says we should be diligently seeking Him. Diligently seeking the Lord. I say this for this reason, because sometimes, here's what happens for us as Christians. Sometimes people, maybe they're a little more inclined to being diligent. You know, they're just, they're a hard worker. They're a type A personality. They're a workaholic. And some people are very diligent in their job or their career or their pursuit or whatever. And they're so diligent at that, they begin to lag in diligence in their spiritual life. They are extremely dedicated and hardworking to their career and being the best worker, and that's great and wonderful, but sometimes that becomes a substitute for any energy diligence left over in seeking the Lord. Listen, don't ever let it be a substitute. Good to be diligent in both, but if you have to pick, be diligent in serving the Lord first. And God will give you the grace to then function in the measure that you should being diligent to honor him in those other areas. He also says then what we should be in contrast. So we should not be lagging in diligence, but what we should be in contrast, he says here is fervent in spirit, fervent in spirit. The idea is to be passionate and enthusiastic in attitude, especially again toward God and toward seeking God. Interesting when you look at the term that's used there in our text, fervent in spirit. It's a term in the original language which speaks of heating something up to the boiling point. 
that we should be boiling over in spirit, God commands for us to be a zealous and eager people. To be boiling over, that should be the manner of our life. His will is that we be boiling over with intensity and passion. Certainly in our spiritual life, and really, I think, just in life in general. That should characterize our attitude and our temperament. Something is wrong internally, and it's time for a spiritual checkup when I begin to struggle with half-heartedness. Remember, the only church that Jesus said, I'm about to vomit you, at strong language, out of my mouth, Jesus said, is to the believers that were lukewarm. Half-heartedness. Jesus said that it makes me nauseous. I'd rather you be freezing cold or boiling hot. So fervent in spirit. When I picture something boiling, I picture something that's bubbling over, boiling over, spilling over. And he says this is how we should be, a, a people who are passionate, enthusiastic. He then says serving the Lord there in verse 11. So that indicates being spiritually productive, actively living for the Lord. Again, what do we do by nature? The natural human nature is to be self-serving, to serve ourselves. And sadly, that's really, though we all have done it at times, being a self-serving person is extremely counterproductive because even when you do it really well, and some people do that really well, they're very good at being self-serving. But here's what happens. I've been guilty of it before. When you become self-serving, ultimately the reward of that is emptiness, and being miserable and really never being satisfied still and, and being many times self-destructive when you're self-serving. You become self-destructive. So this morning, let me leave you with this thing to ponder. Perhaps if you're struggling right now with some inner emptiness or you feel like your life kind of lacks purpose, it's meaningless and empty, maybe perhaps it's because of how you've been living. Maybe you've been a little self-serving. And the Bible says, look, just change the person at the end of that. Try serving the Lord. Try serving the Lord because there's purpose and fulfillment. Today, are you actively serving the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Serving the Lord. Many times people will attend meetings that involve the Lord. We're all doing that this morning. We like receiving things from the Lord. Lord, I need your help. And, and I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm all into receiving from the Lord. Desperation. I'm all into receiving from the Lord. I'll talk about the Lord. I'll, I'll associate with the things of the Lord. I'll attend meetings where the Lord is involved. But the Bible says that God wants us to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. To be on active duty, to engage in a way whereby we follow him as Lord and we actually serve him like a servant serves a master. And again, I think that's the key, serve the Lord. Especially if you're someone who's doing ministry in some capacity, make sure that you're doing it to serve the Lord. That you're not doing it to serve Calvary Chapel, that you're not doing it to serve people in general because if you're doing it for Calvary Chapel or for people, you're going to get burnt out or frustrated the first time somebody doesn't say thank you or encourage you or notice what you did. You're going to, your, your duration is, and, and your durability is going to drop real quick. You're going to, guess what? You're going to start lagging in diligence and you're not going to be fervent in spirit. But if you're doing it for the Lord, 
that will help you be diligent and help you to do it with a fervency of spirit. So serving the Lord, so important. Verse 12, he goes on to then say, we should be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. So here we see, verse 12, that a believer should exercise spiritual anticipation, that a believer should have endurance in hardship and be persevering as it relates to seeking God. First, he speaks in verse 12 of spiritual anticipation. He says the believer should be rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Unlike the world and those who are unsaved, who live their life, let's be honest, quite hopeless. They really don't have anything to put reliance in regarding the future. They have nothing to look forward to. There's a sense of hopelessness. Where God's people, because we know the Lord and understand spiritual things, we have something to hope in. We have many things to hope in. Like Romans 8.28, remember it? For we know that what? All things are working together for our good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So though we go through things, we have this assurance that because we love God and we're called according to his purpose, there's a special promise God gives to his child who loves him and is seeking to follow his will. God says, I will on your behalf make everything that happens in your life to work out for your ultimate good. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope of, hey, there is heaven beyond this hellish experience that we're enduring right now on this earth. That this is the worst I'll ever have to experience. See, as a Christian, this is the most hell that you'll ever have to experience. To realize we have that hope of heaven, the return of Jesus. We have something to rejoice in that pertains to hope to give us a worshipful spirit. So God says rejoice in those things. Because as we rejoice and celebrate in those things of hope, it helps us to cope. It helps us to continue when life's challenging and life's hard. He also says here, secondly, that we should be patient in tribulation. The idea there is exercising endurance during times of hardship. Exercising endurance. That word tribulation is a word that speaks of a crushing, heavy pressure. It speaks of, of being under the weight of something very difficult. And he says that when we're under difficulties in this life... The Lord wants us to learn how to be patient and bear up in those things. To exercise endurance, even when it's hard. Even when we're under a crushing weight and it's difficult, that we will learn how to patiently bear up under the struggle and let the Lord supply His grace and shape our character and give us the endurance of spirit that allows us to represent Him well in the midst of a world that's struggling and suffering, that people see, how do you keep going? How do you keep your head up? How can you go through what you're going through and still smile or have some sense of inner peace when your world has fallen apart? Well, let me tell you how. Because there's a God whose grace is sufficient and he sustains me. And I have a hope of something beyond this life. So he says, be patient in tribulation. And then thirdly, in verse 12 here, he says also that we should have, look, perseverance in seeking God. He says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Some translations render that devoted to prayer or faithful in prayer. And again, what's prayer? It's communication with God. It's just talking to God, seeking Him, looking for and asking for God's involvement in things. And notice here, verse 12, the Bible commands us to continue steadfastly in prayer. 
to keep going, to be faithful and devoted. Why? Apparently, God who knows all things, God understands something about our humanity and knows that this will be a struggle for us, that this is a weakness of our flesh, that we don't continue in prayer and that we need to be reminded to continue in prayer. God knows that it's one of the greatest targets of the devil to unarm the Christian, to render anemic the church. So therefore, he gives this exhortation that we should be continuing steadfastly in prayer. The word continuing is defined as, listen, not allowing something to come to an end or stopping, to carry on in an activity, to endure, to keep going, to stay at it, to faithfully persist and as needed to renew, to restart, to resume and revive if it has began to cease. And the Bible says these are terms that should define the importance of prayer and our participation in it. He says not only that we should be continuing, but he says, adjective there, continuing steadfastly. Steadfastly, that means unwavering devotion. Colossians 4 says, continue earnestly in prayer. God commands a measure, please hear this, of strong devotion. And even, I'm going to say the word, here it is, commitment to continuing in prayer in our personal lives as a church corporately persevering in the process of seeking God asking for his involvement praying that his hand would be at work without getting distracted from it without becoming disheartened and giving up or, or, or having a disinterest. Again, writing your notes here, Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, because Jesus there teaches a parable in Luke 18 that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Listen, I believe this is a fundamental command and exhortation from the Lord for us that we need, even here as Christians, and my prayer is a part of this church, that we would be continuing steadfastly in prayer continuing steadfastly in prayer, not giving up, not backing off, not pulling away, not allowing its importance or any of that to be drawn away, but continuing. Hey, in your personal life, what you're praying for, that unsaved loved one, that door that needs to open, that breakthrough that needs to happen, that desire to get to know God more in your personal life, listen, you keep praying. Keep praying. Keep seeking Lord. For those of you who, who take the opportunity and attend prayer meetings before the service or after the service or times of prayer, listen, don't get discouraged. Say, wow, there's only, why is there only eight of us? There's more than eight people in this. Listen, no, we need to continue steadfastly in prayer, realizing that God hears that God has the power to answer and is going to act. So here, this great exhortation to be persevering and seeking God. Verse 13, he says, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. So here we learn that we're to be concerned about and generous in meeting the needs of the family of God, as well as extending love to those maybe that we're less familiar with. He says, distributing to the needs of the saints. That's a word that speaks of Christians, saints, that part of our walk with the Lord is to show care for other Christians if and as needed to be genuinely concerned about the needs of others as well as the needs of ourselves. And if we see a need arise in a person's life or a family, and again, a need, I'm not saying every want or desire or wish, but a genuine basic need of life, 
that we should seek to do what we can to, to distribute to that need, to try and do something to contribute toward that need. I think it's a good thing to want to endeavor to meet the basic needs of everyone. However, notice that God commands in the Bible, take note, to first take care of those within the spiritual family. He says distributing to the needs, doesn't say of the world. A lot of times as Christians, we feel very spiritual because we want to go out and take care of the world. Jesus said the poor you'll have with you always. Doesn't mean we shouldn't minister to them. But we're not going to resolve the issue of poverty. But the Bible does command us to distribute to the needs of the saints. God says, look, just like in a natural family, I would not walk by my children and watch them starve so that I could feel good about feeding the neighbor's kids. Because my family comes first. That is my first responsibility. I should never be giving something to help another and neglecting my family. And God says in the same way spiritually, we take care of the family first. So we must be wise in the way that we take into consideration how we meet needs to realize, listen, we need to take care of the family first. That, that's what God commands us to do. doesn't mean we should stop caring for others, but we're commanded to distribute to the needs of the saints. And then he says, given to hospitality, and that term means expressing kindness or friendliness to strangers. The implication here is reaching out and interacting with those we're less familiar with. It's about seeking interaction with people, not because we want to be entertained or enjoy their company, but like in the ancient culture, hospitality was something they did where they would take people into their homes because the inns and hotels were rather dangerous. So they would take someone that was a stranger, maybe into their home to feed them and to, to give them shelter. And it wasn't necessarily, hey, come over because we have some great laughs when you come over. It was, I want to do this to bless you. I want to do this to help you. And here God says that we should be exercising kindness to people that we're less familiar with sometimes as an act of extending love to them. That we should be given to hospitality. The word given there literally means to pursue or go after like you're chasing something. So what God is calling us to do here is that we should at times proactively initiate maybe reaching out to someone that we're less familiar with. Maybe talking to somebody after a service that we're not as friendly with because that's given to hospitality. And hey, let me say this this morning to all of us. Be careful. Don't become one of these people who complain that nobody's friendly. You be friendly. The Bible says he who has friends must himself be friendly. Who has not heard before? Oh, people aren't very friendly there. Well, did you talk to anybody? Nobody said hi to me. Did you say hi to anybody? See, God says we're called to be the initiators in the love of Christ, befriending people, reaching out to those less familiar. It's a beautiful way to serve. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I don't like that. We're just going to skip that one. Bless those who persecute you. What's persecution? It's being harassed in a way intended to injure, grieve, and afflict you because of your belief. And he says to us that we're to bless those who do this to us. Look, again, even as Jesus was falsely accused and mocked and mistreated, and we'll talk more about this in our verses next week so we won't camp here long, part of the Christian walk is experiencing shame and mockery because of your commitment to Christ. And it will come from your family, it will come from your friends, it will come to the world. The question the Bible says is how do we respond and react when those occurrences happen? 
He says here that when spoken to or treated harshly or wrongly for our association with Jesus, we should refrain from reacting out of our hurt and pride or maybe anger in like form, but instead, through the grace of the Spirit given to us, we should return love and kindness. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitely use you and persecute you. And I say to that, that is not natural. It's supernatural. As you abide in Jesus, he wants to give you the grace to live supernaturally rather than you naturally would. Look at verse 15. He then says, And rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So here we see Christians are to be walking in love and able to empathize with other people, experiencing the emotions of others around us in support and connection, whether it's joy or sorrow, because we're supposed to live interconnected like a body with many parts. You know, if, if I am, which I don't do very often, but I'm just going to use an illustration, hammering something, and I miss the nail, which I would probably do because I'm not very handy, and I smash my thumb, my whole body participates in that. It's not just my thumb. Just, oh, look at that. It's squished like a grape. It's bleeding all over the place. No, no my whole body is, is radiating. It's experiencing the pain. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one member suffers, we all suffer with it. If one member is honored, we all rejoice with it. This is the same implication here. God's asking us to learn to be sympathetic in our emotions and experiences with other people and not to be so self-focused. So he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, when somebody's blessed or honored, don't become jealous. Don't allow yourself to become jealous. Why did they get that opportunity? Why are they blessed? Why that ha But actually endeavor by the grace of God to be sincerely happy for them, to celebrate with them of how God's done something good in their life, even if it hasn't happened in your own. And he says on the opposite side of that, weep with those who weep. The idea there is be able to pause and mourn and grieve when someone else is hurting. If something happens that causes sorrow or grief, and somebody is, is, is grieving, we're not to ignore it or be unmoved by it, but we're to pause. We're to hit the pause button in our life. And we're to go and share in the suffering with that person and be with them in a sympathetic way. God is saying, be sympathetically involved in each other's lives. Whether rejoicing or whether grieving. In verse 16, he says, finally, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble and do not be wise in your own opinion. So here the implication to us is a command toward humility that will facilitate love and respect in relationships. Look what he says, verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. That means live harmoniously. Be of the same mind. Live harmoniously. Christians should be, hear me, reasonable and flexible people in their temperament. We, above all, should be willing to yield and adjust at times because we see the higher purpose. We should be people of that temperament. He also says here, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. The idea is don't allow yourself to start always looking for ways to climb higher, whereby you then start to relate to people with that concept in your mind. So you want to go pursue that person or talk to that person or engage that person because they can help me up the ladder of life somehow. And, and this person is talking to me right now. Look, you can't really do anything for me. So it was good talking to you. And, and, and then you go run up and God says, don't do that. 
Don't begin to act in that way. Humbly interact with those of lower status and position at times. One translation says, don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people. I like that. Enjoy the company of ordinary people. And he says, lastly, don't be wise in your own opinion, which just speaks of being stubborn and arrogant that you're always right. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at these commands here, and this is all really good counsel, and it makes a great spiritual lecture. But here's the challenge. Now we pray, and this next week is our lab work. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray.